1: Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, we discuss the difference between Max FAC and the Customs Partnership and whether or not anyone has got any interest in finding out the difference between them.
0: We talk about what I did on my holidays.
1: And you ask us, would Tessa Jowell have won the London mayoralty? <music> Stephen, I'm so excited to talk about Brexit.
0: I am actually genuinely thrilled uh, to talk about Brexit.
1: That's a lie. That's a massive lie. You don't look thrilled.
0: I honestly am. I'm thrilled in, in the context of, of the, the NS podcast where it can be slightly more discursive. I'm terrified about it in the context of my free morning email.
1: GDPR compliant, I should stress. Is it? Yeah, because everybody who signed up to it definitely agreed to sign up to it.
0: Okay. Well, I hope anyway.
1: Hey, we're leaving the EU. Great. Um, it turns out everything's related to Brexit. So here's the thing: you were away last week, much missed. Well, Sienna Rogers from Labour List came in, very nice. She gave us a very good debrief on the local election results. So therefore, you missed about the idea that the uh, the cabinet is now and the and the War Committee, groan, shoot me, is now hesitating between maximum facilitation, Max Fac, and the idea of a customs partnership. Now let's explain this one right, because I I want to die every time I do this. The difference is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Customs Partnership, we track goods much more efficiently, work out which ones have a final destination in, in the EU, collect tariffs on all of them, and then reimburse as needed. Maximum facilitation is something about airships.
0: So maximum facilitation is you have trusted trader schemes which allow a lot of people to go past, and you do have some border infrastructure. So there are two things you can say in favour of, of maximum facilitation or max FAC, as everyone took to calling it while I was away. The first is that it exists in the real world, right? I know that... Who uses it already then? Well, it's basically what Switzerland, Norway, etc., etc. If you have a border that's not militarised, I mean, to the extent that any border is not militarised, but do you have any... If If you're not
1: North and South Korea?
0: Well, yeah, or if you're not US-Mexico even, right? If you you have a kind of open border with a kind of fairly liberal migration uh, regime and you're not uh, at military uh, loggerheads with, with the other side... You basically have some version of, of Max Fac. The crucial but here is that any real world version of Max Fac has more border infrastructure than the no border infrastructure the UK government has committed to on Northern Ireland. And obviously, as you will know, having been to the Irish border recently, signs and you know, kind of things are regularly defaced. All of the border towns are represented now by Sinn Féin. MPs, right? So this idea that if you have, you know, goods checks for the occasional lorry, then that is not going to be the site for at least some political violence is, is is for the birds. However, I can't believe that I've got to the point where I'm now grading the Brexiteers on a curve. But it is a positive step for two reasons. One, as I say, it exists in the real world, right? So you've just got to kind of give them that. The second is that at least now they've acknowledged that they have decided that a hard border is a price they are willing to pay for the right to have a trade deal with Digibooty or wherever. And so, again, those are both yeah. bad situations, but at least we're no longer arguing about, you know... The unicorn. The unicorn.
1: Yeah, I agree with you on that. I just feel like where the parliamentary... It, 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 it's really hard. So I was just... Saying to you, I've been reading this book by Stephen Gross, which is about psychoanalysis, and it's talking about a restaurant fire in which people died because they were queuing to pay, right? And about the fact that we're just not very good. Like we take our signals so much from other people about whether or not something is is scary, which happens in the other direction with stampedes and and, and you know crowd tragedies. But my worry about Brexit is I keep hearing things that I think this is really bad. Like, have you been following the row over Galileo? Yep. So basically, what happened was the US was in charge of all satellites, uh, you know, 20 years ago, and therefore we were entirely dependent on it for satnav and all the kind of things. You know, everything like Uber or everything, all these apps now that your you know GPS it depends on. So we sort of thought, wouldn't it be good if we had our own version? Europe's got its own version, and now there's a massive row about the fact none of the contracts for that will be given in going forward to British firms. We're now refusing all the British firms that are currently involved in it, saying that they wouldn't share their sensitive data with you know the, the new firms that would all the business off them which would then slow this project down for three years maybe more so it's one of those things where you know that's the kind of thing that people will notice like if that kind of you know if if that completely stalls into button it's just completely needless bureaucratic wrangling and loss of really let's be honest those are going to be really great high-tech jobs
0: yeah i mean so to kind of loop back around briefly to the customs partnership which has the advantage and it is better and doesn't have these negative externalities, but it doesn't exist in the real world. But I think the thing with stuff like Galileo is that it will be hard, I think, to tell to what extent job losses are about Brexit and to what extent they are about our cruddy economy. A general and economic downturn,
1: which may or may not be caused by Brexit. And
0: now, I mean, I think it will be open and shut and... You know, people deciding to move elsewhere. Yeah, or so to move within the EU twenty-seven. What that will be about, but I think it will be quite muddy. Unless, of course, now the weird thing is obviously the British political establishment loves World War Two metaphors, but actually the metaphor that should be troubling them is is just World War One because no one in 1914 wanted to trigger...
1: An epic Europe-wide conflict leading it, to the deaths of millions yeah. of people in,
0: in the mud of northern France. And even the people who talk about no deal, they actually don't mean no deal. They mean they want a very limited skeleton deal which goes, here's why flights will happen, here's why cancer treatment will still happen, we will arrange the rest elsewhere, slash we'll be bumped into an indefinite transition. They don't actually mean no deal. However, the World War II scenario of ending up with a no deal that no one actually wants is, you know, it's a non-trivial possibility. There right? is this
1: sort of weird thing that happens all the time, which is like, well, if the only reason why we're not getting a deal uh, on the border is because Ireland are, you know, are just refusing, you know, they're they're being, you know, obstructive. And you're kind of like, well, no, they're having negotiating priorities, you know, and they're the other half in a negotiation. But, but also, it I mean, does I'm reveal like, the fundamental interconnectedness of the world. Like, we can't take off our planes and just fly them into French airspace. That's just not a thing that we can now do. Maybe you could have done it in 1940, but not, but not now.
0: The, the thing is, with the kind of Ireland is being difficult, right, is the Actually, the British government is also committed to not having border infrastructure. The British government is also a signatory to the Good Friday Agreement, which is an international treaty. This kind of weird Brexiteer meme. And the one thing they are good at is moving goalposts. I mean, they can't implement anything. They have no real-world policy proposals, but they are excellent at lowering bars and moving goalposts. Because it's not that Ireland has gone, we don't want a hard border, and the UK government has gone, well, we don't. We're yeah, we're entirely relaxed about it. I mean, none of our voters really care about. It. I mean, who are these people? Is Northern Ireland? Do they have the same currency? I mean, although to be frank, I feel that if you ride up the average MP to a lie detector. Many of those comments would would not trouble the polygraph. <laughs> but you know, the UK government also doesn't want border infrastructure, so we're not even negotiating with someone else. We have a series of of, of policy objectives for Brexit which cannot be reconciled with one another.
1: But so also Holyrood this week voted down a, a key bit of their need to approve something. The Lords keep sending stuff back. So, and then Theresa May has been talking about putting back some of those votes until maybe even until after the summer recess. But, you know, this is what I don't understand. It's one of those things where you think, am I going crazy? Because I think this all sounds really very, very worrying. And yet nobody seems as worried as I would expect them to be. So maybe I'm maybe I'm the mad one. Maybe it will all work out okay. Maybe there will be some glorious last minute deus ex machina will come. Uh, you, know, you know what I mean? But I think it's very alarming that in the last couple of weeks we started hearing... Brexiteers talking about wanting to extend the transition period. When having a transition period at all is conditional on us agreeing a skeleton outline with the with the EU.
0: Well, as Emily Thornbury said in her, you know, the problem is, is you hold blah 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 up to the six tests which is a classic example of a politician being 100% right but not having been a good idea for them to say it out loud. I, and this might just be woeful, opt, you know, kind of blind optimism, but seeing as if I'm wrong, people won't be able to call me out on it, seeing as I doubt that I will be special correspondent and the new statesman at that point, or indeed, you know... Oh, so, yeah, the, there won't be a new statesman. The, the, yeah, the matter won't arise. I, I think actually a transition with a very vague kind of there will be an FTA of some form, shape, or... Uh, or you know, form, shape, or function is fairly likely.
1: That's where I would bet. If I had to currently bet, I would bet that we would leave the single market, but not the customs union.
0: Yeah, I mean I think the thing is is then ultimately there aren't the there are there just aren't the votes, you know, kind of before you get into the psychodrama about, you know, does Corbyn dislike the EU? Well yes, obviously. Uh, but actually it doesn't really matter what Corbyn's personal view is. The collective State of the Labour Party means that there is not 325 votes to stay in the single market. There are 325 votes to stay in the customs union. I
1: also think the one thing that I have learned about Jeremy Corbyn that is contrary to the image that everybody had of him at the start is that he does does pursue a politics of priorities, right? There are things that matter more to him and less to him and the things that he will throw under the bus.
0: Yeah, but I also think ultimately in some ways, while that is true, it just also doesn't matter in terms of the single market question. So the PLP this week... Jeremy Corbyn disappointed a lot of people by saying no. Yeah, well, but his spokesman by saying, "Look, we're not going to vote for this EEA amendment." But actually, the important person who spoke at that meeting was not Jeremy Corbyn, not his spokesperson. It was John Speller, the MP for. Why have I committed myself to doing? I don't this? know.
1: Some of the word Kershawton popped into my head, but then no, I went. No, that's Tom
0: Brake. Yeah, um, I don't know why. <laughs> John know Speller, why the MP for
1: something s- Valley. No. Wow, this is
0: embarrassing, Stephen. All I I can keep hearing myself, Bromley, which is where he was MP for first, but it's not where he's the MP for anymore. But, um, yeah, it was John Speller and John Mann, other MPs who didn't speak but who would have agreed with them, Caroline Flint or whatever. Right. But crucially, there are more Labour MPs. And what did John Speller say? He said, look, we can't go into the EEA. That's not what the referendum was about. The referendum was about free movement of people, yada, yada, yada. You know, we can't have the four freedoms. Now,
1: that's. I think that is not an unreasonable, one I personally disagree with, but I think in a political calculation terms, what did people vote on in Brexit? They voted on immigration and the economy. Either the idea that you could have lower immigration, whether or not it would dent the economy, you know, really affected how a lot, huge chunk of people in the middle voted. So I think if you're going to be seen to be delivering what people asked for, something that you signed up to, Actually, the customs partnership or customs, you know, Max Vac or customs union, all of those are kind of ir- irrelevant. I just don't think you're going to get punished by voters for going into the customs union.
0: No, I, I think that is true. I mean, I think although, of course, the you know, I know I've said this before, but one of the problems with Brexit is that because the government didn't agree with the change proposition, uh, you'd have this kind of chimerical result where you can kind of go, "What's out?" So there's kind of what I think of as the the at Brexit, which is the Brexit then. The majority of people in the voting majority voted for, which does obviously mean leaving the single market, ending free movement of people, etc, etc. However, the number of people who uh, wanted to stay in the single market who voted Brexit is bigger by any kind of serious study, right, is bigger than the margin. So there is an open question about whether or not you you then have a 55% support Brexit, but where the majority of the people who support that form of Brexit voted to stay in the EU and then you effectively build a new coalition with a tiny slither of people who wanted to leave the EU in, in different circumstances. I mean, the difficulty is, is I have two very strong reactions to that on which I can't reconcile with one another. The first is that that feels instinctively wrong and anti-democratic to me, right? I, the majority of people who voted to leave wanted to be free of at least one of the four freedoms. But my second reaction is is that, well, seeing as 52% of people did not want to be free of the four freedoms and I think being free of 48% of
1: people didn't want to be free of the four freedoms.
0: no. As in, like, you, you don't get a majority of people. You don't get a majority to leave with yeah. just the votes of people who wanted to be free of the four freedoms. Okay, I see what you mean. And so it's just democratically murky, whichever outcome you pursue... But it doesn't matter because ultimately the government has no bandwidth, is failing to negotiate with it, can't agree anything, cannot pass anything by both the majority of the Tory party and the majority of the you know of, of the House of Commons, which means we will end up, if we agree anything at all, with an indefinite transition. And then this weird uh, prolonged and probably indefinite period in which every time we come to the end of a budgetary round at the EU. So the reason why this transition as currently agreed, goes up to 2021, is that's the end of this budget round. The will uh, in the EU27, based on the MEPs I've talked to and people in the Commission, is one, there's an expectation that transition will go on for much longer, because there's also an expectation that Britain will not become more governable in the next five, Mm. ten years. But it does mean you're going to have this situation where every time you come to the end of a budget round, it'll be like, well, is the UK going to extend its transition?
1: And therefore is it going to keep paying into the EU budget? And is it
0: going to keep paying into the EU budget? And those will be it eye-watering headline sums, right? Full freedoms, yeah. And these and you will have, you know, the kind of politics you see in the United States around the debt ceiling, with kind of these sort of the
1: government shutdown
0: judgering or... crises of, you know, well, is the government going to extend, is it not going to extend? And that feels to me to be the most likely dynamic. Now the question is to kind of slightly look back at the the local elections, right? Isn't one of the subplots of, of those contests? Was the the Conservatives did much better, and in terms of their hopes of staying in office in some kind of minority uh, arrangement, their hopes rest on the fact that they seem to have a kind of small town slash Leave voters firewall. Then the Labour Party did worse than it needs to do to win uh, power in in place in small towns and in places where Leave voters. You know voters who else gathered. had a
1: firewall. Hillary you know, Clinton.
0: Well, I mean, the nature of firewalls is they are inevitably breached. But the thing that would trouble me where I a Conservative is at what point do Leave voters stop voting?
1: Like Leave voters.
0: Like Leave voters. Is it when Brexit is resolved, when we've left and agreed a transition? Is it throughout the time of transition? And crucially, do Remain voters also behave in the same way? Or do they behave in a more, um, you know, is the Remain coalition more sticky? as it were. Now, it feels to me that there are many reasons to suppose that the Remain coalition will be more sticky, not least because they will have lost and people who have lost Tend to be more likely to cohere around something because they have something they still want.
1: But also, if, if there are if there are definite, obvious bad side effects to Brexit, it becomes harder to identify yourself as a Brexiteer rather than somebody who thought this was a good idea, but has now really kind of really gone off it. Or like the politicians, they're all the same. All of those things that you hear all the time on the doorsteps whenever you follow politicians the, around campaigning.
0: The thing is, is that if, if Brexit does go badly, whose incentive is it to point out? Yeah, you know, from a if you're the opposition party, it's never in your interest to go. We've got a crappy economy because of a choice made by you, mm. a third of the voters, or whatever it will be from demographic uh, drift. At that point, it's always their interest to go, the problem is the other party, which is why you should vote for me. So I, I don't necessarily think that the Leave vote will overnight be seen as a mistake. It is clear to me what, if you are a Remainer, socially liberal, et cetera, et cetera, and you're voting for the Labour Party, I can understand what it is that Labour is offering, offering you other than their Brexit position. Certainly, they're not offering you very much as far as their Brexit position goes. Whereas if you are a small-town Leave voter who's voting for uh, the Conservatives, who voted for Labour in 2015 and switched over, or voted for another party and switched over, it is not clear to me what those voters are being offered economically, politically, in terms of uh, social infrastructure, other than we will leave the EU. And that would trouble me if I were a Conservative putting a lot of faith in my firewall. Music <laughs>
1: So Stephen, you last week went on a trip to Israel with impeccable timing just because uh, it's been an incredible week of uh, events there. So the US moved its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, followed by I think you said Paraguay and somewhere. So Guatemala, Guatemala. has now
0: followed suit and Paraguay are due to do so in the next sort of coming days. But
1: not least is the fact that I'm going to get my days mixed up. But this week was um, Nakba Day, the, the 70th anniversary of the, of the State of Israel, being created, and also for Palestinians a day where they've been organizing Hamas and other people have organised into the Great Return March, which culminated on Monday in a lot of people attempting to storm the border fence in Gaza, Israel opening fire on them and killing, I think the death toll is now above 50 people, including some children, I think it was a baby who died from tear gas. Huge international outcry over it. The US seems entirely unbothered. And protests
0: in Tel Aviv about it. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, but the US seems entirely unbothered about the fact that this catastrophically unnecessary decision to move their embassy, which was always something that was held out as a kind of carrot for the continuation of the peace process, has led to all of these deaths. So you weren't there for for that, but you were there the week before. How febrile was the atmosphere when you were there?
0: Well, the thing people kept saying to us is, I know that people always say, oh, you've come at an interesting time, but you've really come at a... Um, now, the thing is, is actually the, the embassy move is, a, in my view, is a bad decision for a variety of reasons. But it's actually not... Um, all that linked to the killing of these protesters, which is much more linked to the anniversary and also the fact that essentially the fear that the IDF has is that some of the people who are moving towards the fence have molotov cocktails, et cetera, et cetera. Now, of course, some of them do. However, bluntly, I you know, Daniel Sugarman wrote a very good piece on this for the Jewish Chronicle, which I think is exactly right. There is simply no argument that the way to deal with, in you know a crowd of thousands,
1: Armed with rocks is uh, a, sniper a, a, a rifles.
0: Well, also just a couple of thousands, some of them who are not armed with worse things than rocks. But ultimately, it's not a it Is it is the definition of a disproportionate rock to shoot live rounds at people, many of whom are unarmed. As well as being immoral, it's also stupid. It, it, it is actively a bad decision for, for Israel's security as well. But that is entirely separate from the politics of the embassy move. It was stupid of the U.S. to have their big, oh, we're going to have a big song and dance about this move in this very fraught anniversary at the start of Ramadan, you know, just at a time when there are many, many reasons why uh, things could kick off and you have the kind of contest of photos of that anchor, was the banker sort of smiling screen, and opening yeah. things and, you know, children in arms, protesters being gunned down, right? So it was stupid to do it at that time. But the problem with moving the embassy is the both Israel and Palestine see Jerusalem as their capital. Oslo, which for a variety of reasons came unstuck after You mean the Oslo
1: talks rather than the Norwegian city yeah, per se? Came
0: unstuck after the agreement uh, in 1996. But almost everyone accepts that you were going to have to have some kind of shared sovereignty of, either shared sovereignty of sola- of, of holy sites or some kind of so what Oslo had was effectively an invisible partition. So you had areas of shared sovereignty. There was no war between East and West Jerusalem. But both countries were able to use it as their capital. So the problem with the US moving their embassy there, the argument runs, is that that effectively means they are explicitly taking a side by putting an embassy in the city now when its status in peace Saying it's future Israel's capital. Versus, yeah. yeah has not been so I actually don't think that, that is... Really true. Ultimately, if there's lasting peace, it will be because there is a viable Palestinian state that doesn't have, you know, its power intermittently taken off. It doesn't have parts of it run by people who want to wipe Israel off the map, and where unarmed protesters aren't shot, and where, crucially, both nations have a shared claim to Jerusalem. But that will only happen with the um, with brave leadership on the Israeli and Palestinian sides. And where the U.S. embassy is, I think, is entirely irrelevant to whether or not you have that brave leadership. I mean, it's a I think no, oof. I disagree
1: with you. I think it's a really strong signal that the U.S. are in, you know, are not. I know not they ever were honest brokers in this, but you know what I mean that they are entirely they they do, they just entirely align themselves with Benjamin Netanyahu and his and his government as it's currently constituted, that they actually don't. What are they, What you know, what things are they kind of holding out as, what, what are the carrots that they're holding out? What is the kind of process that they're holding out to, to Palestine and, and Palestinians? But the location
0: of the embassy isn't a carrot. Now, ultimately, you're talking about a no, but it's a signal the parliament, about, like, the central bank, all of the governmental buildings. Uh, yeah.
1: But I think it's a signal about saying, like, this is the side that we're going to come down on, this is the side that we favour. I mean, not that that was in, ever in any doubt, given the enormous amount of military aid that they give to Israel. But you know what I mean? I just think as a symbolic thing, I think it's, it was extremely ill-timed.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I just don't think it matters beyond it being a boost to Netanyahu's hopes of re-election. Uh, although the problem, of course, is in some ways the success of uh, Netanyahu is a bit like uh, the success of austerity in Western Europe, right? Where you go, we have a terrible economy, we need to tighten our belts and, you know, and make these tough decisions. So you tighten your belts, the economy gets worse, and then you can turn to the voters and go, see, look how bad the economy is. Netanyahu's message is effectively... The Europeans don't like us. They don't understand what it's like to survive in a tough neighbourhood. Can't trust half of the US uh, political establishment. You need me, and one of Netanyahu's massive assets is he has great English. You know, much better than basically any of the Israeli politicians he's gone up against in uh, in recent elections. He said uh, and goes, "Yeah, look, I, I know how to make deals with these people in this tough neighbourhood. I'm tough and strong. I know how to socket to these Europeans and make deals with um, uh, Americans." And as a result of his foreign policy choices, the Europeans distrust Israel more. They have more difficulties in their local neighborhood. And uh, the bipartisan support for the state of Israel in the United States takes another blow. So it becomes true. And his appeal to 25 35% of of the Israeli electorate becomes stronger. And that puts him in the box seat for coalition negotiation. And that sort of vicious circle, I, I don't think really... Needs And I kind of think it slightly um, excuses the decisions made by the Likud party to go, oh, well, the the problem is is that Trump has given in to this nut-a-butter demand of a bunch of people on the American far right. I mean, it is a nut-a-butter demand, but it, it, it doesn't, uh, I think, particularly matter.
1: One thing I wanted to ask, you wrote a notebook for the magazine this week and you went to the Golan Heights Cafe, um, so along Israel's disputed border with Syria. On a clear day, you can see there. From there, you can see shelling happening on one of the oh, yeah, few rebel so, rebel-held cities in, in yeah. Syria.
0: So there wasn't any shelling when we went there. I mean, the, the the I mean, the weird thing, of course, wherever you go in the world, is this kind of ama- amazing endurance of of capitalism's ability to sell you stuff, which is even better in Jerusalem, where you have kind of holy relics, and it's like, ah, I see you have a menorah and also a crucifix. They both light up. How adorable! Moon. It's like, ah, you you're clearly committed to all three of these these faiths. But um, and you go on the Golden Nights, and you can buy a cup of coffee and then sit and on a, yeah you can you can see one of the last rebel uh, cities uh, and when we arrived they apologized for the fact that they were going to have to close early because they said well you know the children will wake up in the night because they will be able to hear shelling from Assad's forces onto onto this one of the few remaining rebel held cities and it felt like a really weird microcosm of and I know we we will i imagine discuss this many many times before the end of the Syrian civil war the weird things that everyone outside Syria have decided they do and do not care about in the Syrian civil war. So obviously we have this weird thing where we keep going, oh, you know, you can't incentivize Assad to use chemical weapons. I mean, he's going to get to stay. He's been incentivized, right? But, yeah, yeah, there is a
1: definitely a kind of thing that comes up yeah. every time we have the chemical weapons debate where it's like the fact that he's gassing civilians is unacceptable to us. The fact that he's shelling civilians, you know, is, is unacceptable. Like, And I can see there is a point about the, what stuff is used. But nonetheless, we have basically signed off on the idea that he can kill as many of his own people as he wants as long as he does it in like our approved set of ways, which is fundamentally Yeah,
0: and also weird. in terms of the calculus about you can't reward the use of chemical weapons, well, he's going to get to stay. So what is the what is the what is the non-reward? But it feels to me that the British political establishment has reached this consensus where we've decided that Assad will win the Syrian civil war, we will intermittently bomb an empty airfield, and where will be a round of isn't Jeremy Corbyn beastly in uh, large chunks of, of the British press, and that is our that is what we have decided to care about in Syria. Now, Israel has a yeah, you know, I mean, is doing a lot more for. For people on the Syrian border than, than the British government is, but they similarly have this weird thing where um, they've now formalised a program where IDF medics in the field are going. Well, look, I've signed, a, I've done the Hippocratic oath, so I'm not going to leave this person to to die. Where people are medevaced outside, out of Syria, fixed up in an Israeli hospital, and then bundled back out again. Bundled back, and it, again, it has this thing of just like, all oh, right. So again, the symbol is the the kind of the message that the whole world has sent is that. Provided Assad kills people fairly quickly without using chemical weapons, that's fine. But if he injures them, their neighbours will patch them up in hospitals. And if he uses gas bombs, then by God, the might of the West will flatten a uh, uh, an empty airfield.
1: Once we told the Russians to make and the Iranians to get out of it. Yeah,
0: it, and it is just um, a kind of bleak and utterly surreal kind of microcosm of sort of the hilariously bad and grimly bad... failed interventions in the Arab Spring and failed non-interventions in the Arab Spring. I mean, at every stage. uh, And
1: the complete failure of the UN as an inter-supranational disputes body now.
0: Yeah, although Libya, of course, was a UN-backed, you know, the, the, the P5 did all back it. Yeah, and so that was kind of interesting but bleak.
1: And now time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. So this week's question is about Tessa Jowell, who sadly died last weekend at the age of 70. And essentially it's kind of appraising her strengths and weaknesses as a politician, I would say, by saying what would the London Merrill race have looked like had she run it. She was endorsed by the NS. I think Jason in was very impressed with her work on the London Olympics. Um, she had a big reputation for working kind of on cross-party stuff. Obviously, I think the main plank of her legacy is Sure Start, now sadly being you know disemboweled. And 24-hour drinking. Yeah.
0: A big Crosland I aim. It was like crossing the future of socialism. We talked about the need for, you know, pleasant open spaces because people, des- you know, quite rightly, because people deserve, uh, you know, the, the, the equal access to, to beauty and green space is an important progressive issue. And, um, yeah, open plazas on the European model with people being able to drink 24 hours. So, yes, she achieved that.
1: So there are three things that I think that happened because Sadiq, Mar- Sadiq Khan won the nomination that wouldn't have happened if Tessa Jarl had won it. And I think they're all quite important. The fact is that he played the Corbyn, no Corbyn zigzag extremely well. So he nominated Corbyn for the Labour leadership, banked a lot of credit for that. Then came out, I think, the weekend after he got the Labour primary nomination and did an interview with the Mail on Sunday in which he went, call by me, governor, geezer, marry a London taxi, I love the Queen. Here's my Union Jack, and so he could kind of successfully calibrated his message of like you know appealing to the Labour left, but also then mo- like tacking much more back to the centre. The second is that I think his campaign was absolutely excellent at selling him as a narrative, and about his background. You know, the sort of son of a ta- son of a bus driver, and now he's headed for City Hall. You know, raising a council house, now he's going to build you know more houses for you. I thought that bit of the campaign was calibrated extremely well. It fused biography and political sensibility really well and the third thing is the disastrous ill-advised and you know frankly gross uh, islamophobia that was leveled at him by the linton crosby run um zach goldsmith campaign where they went oh bus bombers oh they're muslim he's muslim coincidence i think not and the dog whistling that failed and those are three things i think would have all played out very differently so there might have been another route for tessa jail to win it but three of the things i think really contributed to his win would not have been there for her
0: i mean i disagree I mean, obviously, I start from a perspective that I have an incredibly large protester bias because when we first met, there was a point in our respective careers when she had no need to be as kind and generous with her time as she was, which I think was a very common experience for people uh, at Westminster about her. But we forget that she did phenomenally well in that selection. For someone who was, you know, sufficiently pipe-cane of paid up Blairite partisan, and mm. she gave Ed Balls her fifth preference in twenty ten. She was on the record saying she would, um, you know, fall under a bus uh, for for the, Tony, the blessed uh, Toblerone, yeah. Um, and yet, she, you know, she did not lose that badly. She did significantly better when you think about how many votes Corbyn got out of London uh, yeah, in yeah. the leadership race. Right? She got a phenomenal number of Corbyn one, Tessa one votes. Right? So she was in. She ran an incredibly astute campaign. Uh, and you know, did, did very well to to not lose uh, by by more.
1: Her policy proposals were very good as well. I remember she uh, on housing, particularly about building on TFL land and things like that, were very impressive.
0: But crucially, although every time I I do this, uh, Corbyn sceptics get annoyed with me. There is literally no evidence that Sadiq Khan did better than like a generic like vegetable with "I love Corbyn" tattooed on him. With the exception of two places, his home constituency of Tooting, mm-hmm. uh, where he. Just did phenomenally well, even by the standards of Rosena. Alan Khan's very good performance there in 2017. And that's clear also if you look at the, the London... The other, wait, wait,
1: wait. What was the other place he did well?
0: And among, and in Jewish uh, areas with large Jewish populations, he did better than Labour did in 2016. Because that guy's whole. been
1: to a lot of synagogues.
0: And you can see this again when you look at the 2017 performance of Andy Burnham. And then when you compare Andy and Sadiq's performance with how Labour did in twenty in these local elections, obviously a much better set of local elections as far as Labour's poll position and also in terms of its performance as far as the uh, projected national uh, vote share. And it is clear across those elections that Sadiq did not win that election himself. He won it as a, a Labour candidate. Okay, now, so
1: you do agree with me then, which is that actually she had a route to winning it—a perfectly plausible route—but it wouldn't have been the same route that he took.
0: No, it would have been the state. It would have been exactly the same route, and then she would have probably done much better in Dulwich and West Norwood than anywhere else because she was liked there and had been an MP there for a long time. She would have done better with the uh, because the other. But would the Tories it, it, have
1: done better at finding attacks on her that actually didn't just repel people? Could no, they have I painted her as a sort of establishment? So, She's been around for a long time, whereas, you know, fresh, young, perky millionaire upstarts at Goldsmith. But yeah, then you're hasn't.
0: just like saying a kindly old lady who kind of conveys warmth is tired and old. and I don't think that's a good place to be in either. And I think in terms of, you sort of have to, I think, you yeah, know, the, the question in terms of it being different is you have to go, well, where did Sadiq do better than she wouldn't have? Tooting, obviously. And again, the lesson from the local elections is that, Although this didn't hold uh, in Barnet, although the swings were not as bad uh, in Barnet as they were in places where candidates were standing down, you know, Kersal or whatever in, in Salford, the performance of incumbents where they have a strong relationship with the community is, is consistently better. The community uh, felt less annoyed with the Labour Party in 2016 than it did in 2018. And so I just don't buy that Tessa Jowell wouldn't also have done as well in those i mean this is the thing it's annoying for many of us because uh, a lot lots of us have been very rude about andy burnham's leadership campaign and some of the people who worked from that leadership campaign were, were hard to take but um
1: but he's good at politics it, it is Stephen. increasingly it, clear say say no, it, no, no, no. the thing is
0: it is increasingly clear that if you want to point at a politician who's run for a metro mayoralty and go this guy has done better than we would expect it's andy burnham it's not sadiq
1: well, I think that's a good point to end. Sorry, Andy, for all the things that Stephen has said about, and let John say about you, let's be honest. And um, yeah, I was were...
0: actually one of the nicest people about him during that leadership election, just throwing that out there.
1: He's got lovely eyes. That's anyway, true. on that note... <laughs>
0: you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me stephen bush and my colleague helen lewis it's recorded by india bork and produced by caroline crampton our music is Devil by the devil and is licensed by creative commons if you've enjoyed the new statesman podcast please leave us a favorable review on itunes